Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. We're going to begin in John chapter 1, and we're going to look at a handful of verses that, that retell the first day that John the Baptist is on the scene. The way that the author of the book of John uh, structures this is we have three days of John's activity, and today we're going to see the first day that John is ministering. It's not the first day of his ministry, do not be confused there, but this is the first day in a three-day period that the author is giving us as a snapshot of what John the Baptist was all about. This is John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. It says, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to him to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water. John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The word of God for the people of God. So the first thing that we should note here, and this is where I kind of verge into the nerd territory. You guys know that I tend to hang out sometimes with some nerdy topics. But one of the things that really gets me going when I'm looking at the book of John is comparing John to the other three gospels. In, in the New Testament, it begins with, begins with four different stories, four different retellings of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've already hinted towards the fact that John is the weird one of the four. In fact, the other three are typically known as the synoptics because they tell a lot of the same stories structured in the same way, even though the authors have a specific point that they are moving towards. John is, uh, at least according to Clement of Alexandria, the spiritual gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the bodily facts, the physical facts of Jesus and his ministry, but John tells this spiritual story, and maybe we saw some of that last week in that introductory 
prologue. But here there's a lot of difference between how John tells the story and how Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story. Not only of Jesus, but of other characters as well. And I would posit a bet that in your recollection of John the Baptist, you probably default to the picture of John the Baptist that is ascribed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These stories that talk about John the Baptist's dress. He's wearing cloaks of camel hair and a leather belt. He's eating wild locust and honey. He's out in the middle of the wilderness with this apocalyptic or eschatological message of repentance, of forgiveness. He's like the street preacher with the sign that says turn or burn, almost, kind of. And he's just this crazy character, but yet a lot of people are compelled to go and see him, to go and be near him, and to receive the baptism that he is offering these people for forgiveness and for purification. During this time, there was a lot of uh, Jewish individuals who would observe something that's called a mikvah, where they would cleanse themselves by walking down into a pool of water, and then they would ascend on the different side of the staircase in a, in a symbolism of their purification. And John was out in the wilderness practicing this baptism of purification, but also a baptism of forgiveness. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they kind of explicate on this theme. John is a bit crazy. He's a bit unhinged. He's a bit of a madman. You can picture like his hair going crazy, and he's just out there, yet he is still having people that are going to hear him. The picture of John that is told in the book of John is very different. John the Baptist, as we just read, he's not, uh, we don't get a lot about his message. We don't get a lot about why he's baptizing people. We don't get a lot of details about him. In fact, that it seems that the author is presupposing that we know a lot of these facts already. But the thing that the author of the book of John is wanting us to know is very different. In fact, if we go back to that prologue that we looked at last week, the way that the author um, sets this out, it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness. He came to testify concerning that light. Remember, Jesus is referred to as the light, the true light, so that through him, that is through John, all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The thing that John is really stressing here is that John the Baptist is a witness to who Jesus is. John the Baptist is one who points us towards Jesus, away from himself, and towards the Son of God in John's own understanding, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world in next week's text. This is John the Baptist saying, it's not about me, it's about this guy. He is a witness. He is testifying. He is witnessing towards the, the beauty that is Jesus. And this is what we see that's being put forth in the book of John. I got a little, uh, get a little itch on the art history this week. And I spent some time looking at old pictures of John the Baptist. Throughout uh, this, this, this time when people were painting these biblical scenes, there's an oddity about many pictures of John the Baptist. At times you see little infant John kind of with, with a lamb. At times you, you see John baptizing people. But oftentimes in many artistic representations of John the Baptist, you see something interesting in the pictures. I don't know if you can pick up on this right here. You can see the lamb down there in the corner, but you see John at the top and you can see what his finger is doing perhaps. 
he's pointing towards the lamb. This is a theme that is throughout these pictures of John. He's pointing again, John on the left here of this panel, pointing towards the lamb. We can see also that it's not just John pointing towards a lamb, but at times John is pointing towards the Christ child or later on pointing towards the crucified Jesus. John in his ministry as represented in these paintings, John is pointing us away from himself and towards Jesus. Now it says in this text that this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. People were upset that John was out here doing these things and creating such a stir. The religious leaders were going to figure out what in the world was happening. They, had been, they were sending envoys to see what John the Baptist was all about. And John is very quickly relinquishing any sort of acclaim, any sort of power, any sort of status. And he says, he did, the text says, he did not fail to confess, it actually says he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed, stressing how emphatic this denial was. He's confessing and confessing freely, saying, I am not the Messiah. I am not the guy that everyone is looking for. I am not the person that you think that I am, but I am out here preparing a community for the Messiah. At this time, there was no single monolithic and uniform messianic expectation among first century Jews. If we learn anything from this text, and I think we learn a handful of things, one of the things that we learn is that there was, they were not uh, on board necessarily with what was going to happen or what they were waiting to see happen. They go out there not knowing if John the Baptist is the Messiah. He's gaining a following. And that's their first sort of question. Tell us, are you the person that we've been waiting for? Are you the person that we've been looking for? And he very quickly says, no. But that doesn't end it because they go on to ask more questions. Well, are you Elijah? Because we also have been waiting for an Elijah figure. If you don't know, Elijah is an Old Testament prophet. The story about Elijah is he is one of a couple people in the Bible that actually did not die. Instead, he is taken up in a chariot of fire. So there's this whole Jewish tradition of because Elijah did not die but was taken up there somewhere, whatever that looks like, he's going to come back and usher in the end of the age. In the book of Malachi, we get some of this um, anticipation here. Malachi 4 says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed well -fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. There was this anticipation within the Jewish mindset that there was a Messiah figure coming, although they didn't really have an, a clear idea what that would look like. They also thought that there was going to be an Elijah figure who would show up, and perhaps this was John, the, the, the um, 
the clear connection between Elijah as he also wore camel hair, he also wore a leather belt, he was also really crazy and kind of out on the margins. And when we see John the Baptist living in the midst of this, that question of, are you John the Baptist, seems to make sense, but he very quickly says no. And finally they say, well then, are you the prophet? You see, Jewish people were waiting for a Messiah figure, or they were waiting for an Elijah figure, or they were waiting for a prophet to show up. Specifically, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that they were waiting for a prophet like Moses. It says in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, that's Moses, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. And then in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like Moses from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything that I command him. So we had this expectation that's waiting. In the, in the moments when Jesus shows up, the world is prime for something to happen. And when we have this figure of John the Baptist out in the wilderness baptizing people, saying, someone greater than me is about to show up, it's setting the world on edge. It's setting the Jewish people on edge. It is making us look forward to the moment in which Jesus shows up to bring about our redemption and our reconciliation. So John the Baptist says, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. Instead, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. My work is to prepare for Jesus. My work is to make that path straight so that he can show up. My work is to make everything okay for the moment when he enters into this world where that we are prepared, where we have been baptized, where we've been purified, where we've been forgiven, forgiven of these sins in this uh, ritualistic baptism. The world will be ready because of the ministry of John is what he seems to be saying. He goes on to say, I baptize with water but among you stands one that you don't know. He is the one who comes after me, and I'm not worthy to unstrap his sandals. This was the job of a slave in this time, a servant. And John says, I can't even be Jesus's servant because he is so much greater than me. In John's ministry and in these passages that we see here in the book of John, the Baptist is pointing away from himself to Jesus. The Baptist is, is pointing away from his own ministry, away from the people that are coming to see him, pointing away from all of the notoriety, the fame perhaps, the questions from the religious elite that are saying, are you the Messiah? Think for a moment about what that would do to your ego. When the most important people show up to say, hey, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you the one that's about to set everything to rights? Are you the one that's going to make this place what it is supposed to be? Side note, just because I know you're interested. This uh, photo here in, uh, in the front, in the foreground, I forget the artist, uh, I think it was Da Vinci, I think it was one of his last works, but the way that it was described, you can't see it because he's got braids and stuff kind of flowing all around him, the way that it was described in one of the websites was, this is John the Baptist's sexy 
and sanctified. Or something ridiculous like that. Okay, so just be blessed by that. Um, so we see here, sexy and saintly is what it was. Sexy and saintly. Can't we all just wish to achieve that acclamation? In all of this stuff where we've, we've kind of unpacked some of the background, the Jewish expectation of the time and what John the Baptist was doing out in the wilderness and asking people to come and to be a part of this, it leads to the question that I want to present to you this evening. What are you pointing toward? If your life was examined, what are the things when people come and approach you, are you pointing them toward? Are we as a collective, are we as the Restoration Project, are we kind of banking on our collective intellectualism? Are we banking on the fact that we read books about social justice? Are we banking on the fact that we are thinking big, deep thoughts? Are we banking on the fact that we have a handful of people who go minister to the community kids? Are we banking on the fact that we have all this stuff that, that on the outside looks good, but when it comes down to who we as individuals are pointing individuals towards, what does that look like? The reason why I wanted to uh, throw in that Peter Rollins parable is because I think a lot of this has, has overlap for us. When we direct people to one way or the other, are we directing them to all of the stuff that doesn't really matter? Reading the Bible, reading these big books, going to church. Are those the things, the platitudes that we say, this is what Jesus wants us to do or to be about? Or are we able to point them towards loving neighbor, loving the other, loving God with everything that we have so that when you're at home, this is just for my parents in the room, and your kids are going absolutely bonkers. Are you able to redirect and point them to Jesus? What in the world would that look like? I'm not sure, Elise. I do not know. As I, these words are coming out of my mouth. But in those moments, college students, perhaps, you have this, this roommate or this dorm mate or this person that is in your life that you just cannot handle. Are you able to reflect and to point them to Jesus? Or is there too much stuff that's keeping you from from entering into that deep relationship that we're really called to. As Christians, I think sometimes we're okay with the platitudes. We're okay with the checklist. We're okay with doing the things that we've always heard are the things to do. You might be okay coming into this place and sitting in this seat for an hour and then leaving and going back to normal. I don't think that that's what it's about. Now, don't, mis don't misunderstand me. For some of you, it's a bold move for you to come back into this space. It's a bold move for you to take up space in this place, to give God a chance, to give us a chance, to give his word a chance, to sing some songs that might seem weird to you. I applaud you for your efforts to be here, but do not be fooled into thinking that church attendance and Bible reading and reading good books and having these deep conversations and being a, a liberal when it comes to politics or conservative if you want, whatever, however you do that. Like whatever, when, however you make those platitudes, that is not what serving the risen Jesus is about. 
John is pointing towards one who is greater than he is. Are we? One scholar says when she's thinking about this this text, she says the gospel presents John in a role which other believers, and she's really talking about the people in the book that we'll we'll come to meet later. The woman, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well who meets Jesus and then goes back to the town and gives a witness, gives a testimony to who Jesus is and transforms and changes the people in the town. But I think that we can go beyond just her and to think about us in the seats and how we can also step into that role and to be like John, one who points away from ourselves to the risen Jesus, even when every inkling in our deep self-centered soul wants to receive whatever good thing they have and take it for ourselves. Are we able to redirect? Are we able to say, nope, it's not me, it's him? Are we able to point people away from the platitudes and point people to the the real difficulty that is following Jesus? I think at times we've forgotten that when he sets this up, he says, listen, the world hated me. It's going to hate you. It's going to hurt because being an advocate means sticking your neck out for people. And that is what we see in some of these characters. And this is certainly what we see in Jesus. The gospel presents John in a role which other believers who will also be called on to bear witness to Jesus. Who are we pointing to? What does your testimony look like? What is your witness? How are you redirecting the people that you have this beautiful privilege to be in relationship with? How are you pointing them away from yourself and to Jesus? Now, this is where the point of application always gets messy because I would love nothing more than just to spoon feed it to you and say, Matt, this is what you need to do with this. Get after it. Tara, same thing. Go for it. Brandon, here's a dose for you. Take it out there and do it. But I don't know where you are and what sort of opportunities you all have to witness, to testify to become the person that says, let me tell you about Jesus. Now I know, I'm gonna close with this, in our community, I know that this doesn't work out where you got a track in your back pocket and you say, let me tell you, read this cartoon. That's not usually how things go. But perhaps for this strange community of people that are excited about ideas and about deep thoughts, perhaps it might be the case that we're able to engage folks and to point them to Jesus in a way that will make some sort of contact with them, that will help to compel them to see Jesus for all of the beauty that he is, that will help people to see beyond us and our shortcomings and to see Jesus, the one who understands and knows where we have been. There was one of those pictures up there, and I really will close with this. It was depicting Jesus on the cross, and the graphics are sort of bad in here uh, because of the lighting, but there were like all these spots all over his body. I'll put it on Facebook later. 
The people that commissioned this painting, the monastic community that commissioned this, were known for the way that they were able uh, to help people with various skin diseases. And the picture of Jesus on the cross was one who had the skin disease, the one who could identify with the weakness of the people. My hope is that when we are redirecting, when we are appointing, when we are saying, let me tell you about the person that I serve, let me tell you about the person I've actually given my life to following, that there's a point of contact where he doesn't become some ethereal mystery, but he becomes one who is in solidarity with us, who understands where you have been, what you are going through, who understands hurt and suffering and rejection even at our own hands, yet says, I still want you. May we be the type of people that when we have those divine moments, we are able in whatever way God has gifted us, in whatever way is uh, consistent with who we are, may we deflect and may we point people to Jesus as we walk with them taking them to the cross and the empty tomb. May we be the people who are transformed ourselves. May we be the people who are not content with platitudes. May we be the people who have experienced Jesus, who have been transformed by his grace, and who can change the world because of it. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.